Luke chapter 10, beloved. Luke chapter 10 is where we are tonight. going through this gospel as we've been taking our time, not endeavoring to take our time any more than necessary, but endeavoring to understand the Word and by the Lord's help be edifying in our musings and thoughts and the application of the Scriptures to your heart. And so we just take it as it comes. I hoped last Lord's Day to deal with verses 21 and 22 of Luke chapter 10 which I failed to get finished. So this is part two of that message with, uh, let's just say, a little more added. I wasn't going to say everything I'm going to say tonight, last week, but I think it's worthwhile musing and pondering over verse 22 for a little longer. In the providence of God, that is what we endeavor to do. So we'll, again, go back to verse 17, just reading in the context, the Lord has appointed the 70, and they have gone and engaged in ministry, and we are told then of their return in verse 17, Luke chapter 10, verse 17, and the 70 returned again with joy, saying, Lord, even the devils are subject unto us through thy name. And he said unto them, I beheld Satan as lightning fall from heaven. Behold, I give unto you power to tread on serpents and scorpions, and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Notwithstanding in this, rejoice not that the spirits are subject unto you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in spirit and said, I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. All things are delivered to me of my Father, and no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son, and he to whom the Son will reveal him. Amen. And may the Lord give us the understanding we've been praying in our hymns, looking for God to reveal himself to us. And therefore, again, we express that need in prayer before we preach the word. So let us again pray and look for the Lord's help. O oh God, we're thankful that when we pray, we do so in Jesus' name and that heaven is open to us through the finished work of Christ. We're thankful that blood has been shed, atonement made, and reconciliation is assured through the blood of the Lamb. We're glad, Lord, tonight to know what Christ has accomplished for us, and He has bridged the gap. He has brought us near by His blood, and we are therefore complete in Him, as we sang this morning. Give help, Lord. Take away all reliance upon the flesh, Lord, even the tendency just to merely go over what is before us in our notes, grant a message, a message from God. Thou knowest thy people that just need at this time an understanding of Christ that will encourage them, that will bless their hearts and lead them on. There are those, however, that are struggling with unbelief. Some of thy people, perhaps, that are backslidden in their hearts, it is thy work, Lord, to reveal thyself to them and to woo them, as it were, into a recommitment, a rededication of their love to Christ. And there are some here that are lost. 
They may make profession, but they're lost. They may have been baptized, but they're lost. And God, we pray tonight that they may be saved. So use the means that thou hast appointed. May faith come by hearing, and hearing by the Word of God. Give us help now. By faith we rest in the promised Holy Ghost. In Jesus' name, amen. The words that we consider tonight, beloved, are for, in many practical applications really, they are, they are words that are absurd if not true. This isn't the only passage where you have this. There are many times when Jesus says things that really if you just step back and look at it, if, if this isn't true, this, this man is a lunatic. There's no possible way we could ever take these things to be meaningful or serious. You have that scene before you in John chapter 10, for example. And in verse 17, just one of the portions that, one of the things that Jesus says, Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. You think, really? I mean, what kind of a thing is that to say? The Father loves you because you lay down your life that you might take it again. And these words then are met with division. The passage goes on to tell us that there's this conflict among the, those that heard him say these words. Verse 19 and following, there was a division therefore again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Again, they're listening to the words. And yes, there's lots of unbelief that's there. And they're, but they're utilizing the absurdity of the language to try and convince people, why would you ever listen to this man? But of course, on, on the flip side then was the evidence of his power that was, again, the opposite, opposing force to convince people we must pay heed. As absurd as these words might sound to our ears, we must pay heed. Others said, these are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can a devil open the eyes of the blind? So the events that had transpired in the blind man receiving his sight, again, is pushing back against the absurdity of the words. This conflict, then, is always going on. Rightly analyzed, when people read the life of Jesus Christ, when they consider what we are told in the Gospels, there is that sense in which they, we're either confronted with a man who is a great deceiver, or someone that is mad, as is the language of John chapter 10, or, or you're dealing with the, the, this, the, a man who is speaking genuinely with everything that he utters. And so a decision needs to be made by men. What is it? What is it? In the revelation of Jesus Christ, what is it? Do you have a deceiver, a liar? Do you have a madman? Or do you have someone who is, who is actually the very Son of God? And every word uttered needs to be weighed and considered and hearkened to. I can't force you. I can't make you. It's a decision that each one of us makes. Who is Jesus? What think ye of Christ? So as we continue then, considering the verses that we tried to deal with in full last time, verses 21 and 22, I entitled that message, A Unique Revelation of Christ's Joy. And this really then is part two of that message. And I'll just run through very quickly what we've already considered. We had two main points. The first main point was how Jesus rejoiced. How he rejoiced. Verse 21, in that hour Jesus rejoiced in spirit. 
He rejoiced in spirit, or he rejoiced by the Spirit. I suggest that that is the sense of it. It is by the Holy Ghost that he is rejoicing, because there is no joy except by the Holy Spirit. No man can truly rejoice without the Spirit of God. You can be happy, you can give expressions of happiness, but the kind of joy spoken of here is a product of the Holy Spirit. And Jesus Christ was full of the Holy Spirit, and therefore he rejoiced by the Holy Spirit. He was a joyful man. He was. I want to underline that. He was a joyful man. Our Lord Jesus Christ. We don't get an insight into this in in any great detail, but he was. And so the idea then that Jesus was so serious in his business that there was no joy that was expressed by his being is a false false conclusion. He was joyful. He had real gladness. Now, whether it looked like how we interpret joy should look, that's another matter. There are certain cultural distinctions that may be at play. But he had a real joy. And we looked at a number of passages, Acts 2, whenever the Psalm 16 is quoted by Peter, And he refers, therefore did my heart rejoice and my tongue was glad. That's Jesus Christ. Also Psalm 45 is applied to Christ in Hebrews chapter 1 verse 9. Thou hast loved righteousness and hated iniquity. Therefore God, even thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. So how did he rejoice? He rejoiced by the Spirit. What Jesus rejoiced in. This comes to the meat of the text. What he rejoiced in. And there are two main points here. The first one we dealt with last week, and the next one that we will deal with tonight. But that one we looked at last week, he rejoiced in the Father's sovereignty. We see then in his prayer this joy in the Father's sovereignty. Look at it in verse 21. He, first of all, in his prayer, expresses general sovereignty. O Father, Lord of heaven and earth. General sovereignty. The Father has his general sovereignty expressed by this title, Lord of heaven and earth. The prayer also expresses particular sovereignty. He has hid these things from the wise and prudent and has revealed them unto babes. Babes, here's he, he's dealing with the, the application of redemption. He's dealing with those who actually come to a knowledge of the truth. It's not just his governance over the universe in general, but in terms of those that actually receive the truth. God will only reveal himself to those that have the characteristic of infants. That doesn't mean to say that they have infantile behavior, but it is in relation to their dependence. There is no self-dependence. They are utterly dependent upon God. Self-dependence is immediate disqualification when it comes to salvation. And that's worth underlining. That's worth just pausing and considering afresh. Any, any element, listen, any element, I don't care what it is, your name, your background, the church you belong to, the membership of whatever church you belong to, or any other sacrament you've been involved with, or things that you've done, or activities of a religious nature that you think carry weight, anything, anything that brings in a sense of self-dependence is immediate disqualification when it comes to knowing God. He reveals himself to babes. Those that understand, I cannot save myself at all. And the prayer also expresses moral sovereignty. Even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. What he deems good is good, not what we deem is good merely, what we think. And of course, you live in a time when people take a great umbrage against the things that God has said. 
and they don't like what God has said, and they think that God is not good. That's another a subject for another time. So, we come then to he rejoiced in his own sovereignty, not only rejoicing in the Father's sovereignty, but he rejoiced in his own sovereignty. And that brings us to verse 22, which will be our consideration for this evening. And as we consider the sovereignty of Christ here, it is first here expressed in his dominion. It is expressed in his dominion. All things are delivered to me of my Father. Now, I need you to follow me tonight because my intention last week was basically to skim over and give you a sense of the text so that you would at least understand what it is saying. Tonight, however, we're breaking it down a little more, and so you need to follow. You need to follow. What does it mean that all things are delivered to me of my Father? All things. Does that mean everything without exception? Well, there are some exceptions. Certain things were not delivered to the Son of the Father. Life was not delivered to the Son of the Father. His deity was not imparted to the Son by the Father. These things were inherent in Himself. The Son is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. John 1 verse 1, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In the beginning, when all there was, was God. The Son was there, and He was face to face. He was with God, face to face with God. And He was God. But in the economy of the Trinity, which is the language that is used to reflect the distinctions between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the economy of the Trinity, the Father has delivered redemptive responsibility to the Son. He is the sole mediator of the elect. If you have never given consideration to Christ as mediator, if you don't understand what it means that Christ is mediator, you have some study to do. If you don't understand Christ as mediator, there's a huge trunk chunk of the centrality of the gospel that you don't know. Christ is mediator. And in this office, as mediator of his people, the Son would have to become man, enter the world after being born by Mary. He would have to experience tiredness, hunger, thirst. This is God, made man, experiencing tiredness, hunger, thirst. He'd have to be baptized He'd have to be tempted, betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, and ultimately crucified on the cross. These are the experiences of the mediator, the God-man, Jesus Christ. He rose from the dead. He ascended. And for the first time ever, he took physical humanity into heaven. Never before, never before was humanity in heaven until Jesus, the God-man, went to heaven. So all things are delivered onto this mediator by the Father. Why? We might ask the question, why? Why would the Father deliver, deliver it to the Son? Why deliver it to the Son? Why not to an angel? Well, there are certain answers that can be given, but I like the answer of Scripture. In John three thirty-five. we are told, again, this is very similar language. If you were to want to put references that relate to this text, if if you don't have John 3.35 beside verse 22 here, you might want to put it there. The Father loveth the Son and hath given all things into His hand. So why, why does the Father give it to the Son specifically? Because He loves Him. He loves Him. Of 
course, in that language, it's not saying that he, the Father doesn't love other things. That same chapter says that he loved God, so loved the world. But there's again, there's this peculiar love between the Father and the Son. And because of that love, then, all things are delivered into his hand. We might then ask the question, how? How is it delivered into his hand? How is it that the Son is able to do this? John 13, verse 3, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he was come from God and went to God. You might say the how is expressed at least in part right there. He was come from God and went to God. Never before had that taken place. No one had ever come from God and returned to God in the way Jesus Christ was to do. So therefore, he is qualified. It must be then delivered to him. However, it would be wrong for us to assume that when we read the language of verse 22, all things are delivered to me of my Father, that now this Father then steps away and no longer is involved. Turn to John chapter 5. John chapter 5. And I was a little conflicted. Do, do I turn to this portion or not? Because failing to explain it will just open up further cans of worms and will not be helpful to you at all. But I felt I must because in this portion you find, again, similar language, but you also get the balance that this is not. And things being delivered to the Son doesn't mean the Father sits back and has no involvement in what's going on. John chapter 5, verse 19. They want to kill him because... In their view, he had broken the Sabbath. He had healed on the Sabbath day. And also, you see again from verse 18, that God was his Father, making himself equal with God. You think about that. Think about how they're receiving this. Verse 17 is what he said, My Father worketh hitherto, and I work. That language was perceived to be doctrinally implying equality with God. My Father. But verse 19 continues, Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. For what things soever he doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. Now, I don't want to spend any real time here, but I want you to get what's going on here. The Son is saying in verse 19, He does not work independently from the Father. He works with the Father. Now, no man can claim this except the Son. Only he is able to work in this way with the Father. It is a unique position that he is in. No man can say that they only do what they see God doing, and that's what he's expressing here. This is unique to the Son. Everything the Father does, that's what the Son does. He works in perfect harmony with the Father. Now, more could be said, but move on to verse 20. For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that himself doeth. Here we're told that because the Father loves the Son, that's why He reveals all things to the Son. He loves Him, so He reveals all things to Him. And then it goes on to say, and He will show Him greater works than these that ye may marvel. What are these greater works? Well, if you were to read on down, you're going to find out that the Son is going to be the ultimate judge, and He's going to be the one that judges the world. And so, Whatever things you see him doing now, you're going to see greater works. He's going to be set apart to be the judge of all men. 
Verse 21. For as the Father raiseth up the dead and quickeneth them, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. The word quickeneth is old language for making alive. Here, it's a general statement. It may have specific application I'm not getting into now, but at least it's a general statement that life comes from God. And here it is saying that it comes from the Father. The Father is able to make, bring life where it doesn't exist, and so is the Son. And He can make alive whomsoever He will. Again, this is, this is, this is drawing us into an elevated understanding of who the Son is. They're making arguments that He should be put to death because He's making Himself equal with God. Jesus goes on not to say, no, 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 you get, you've misunderstood. Rather, He goes on to say, no, let, let me underline it. Let me express it more fully. Yes, absolutely, I am equal with the Father. As the Father can raise the dead, I can raise the dead. At will. Verse 22. The Father judgeth no man, but hath committed all judgment unto the Son. That all men should honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. He that honoreth not the Son, honoreth not the Father which hath sent him. If I was to summarize those two texts, I would simply say, Christ becomes the litmus test. He's the litmus test. Do you really know God? Well, what think ye of Christ? Do you belong to God? What think ye of Christ? What's your position before God? What think ye of Christ? He is the litmus test. Now, again, my main point here is to show that the Father is working with the Son the Son can do nothing of Himself but what He seeth the Father do, verse 19. So he, he, he's, he's seeing what the Father wills and desires, and they are working together. So I'm just pointing that out so that you don't misunderstand. It's as if the Father gives the Son certain things to do, and then He steps back and He Himself is involved in nothing. Most of you would know that's not the case anyway, but I wanted to underline it. We are not then to get that understanding, but, but they are working in perfect union with this particular distinction that the Son is the sole mediator. The Father is not the mediator. The Son is working in tandem in perfect harmony with the Father, but He is the mediator. And that brings, again, a peculiarity to His work. He is the only mediator of men. In our Confession of Faith, chapter 8, it deals with Christ as mediator. You should read it. And you should read the references that go along with it. In the first paragraph, it says, It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose. Think of this language. It pleased God in His eternal purpose to choose and ordain the Lord Jesus, His only begotten Son, to be the mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king, the head and Savior of His church, the heir of all things, and judge of the world, unto whom he did from all eternity give a people to be his seed and to be by him in time redeemed, called, justified, sanctified, and glorified. In other words, in the working out of the Father's will, in the calling of a people to himself, Christ is set as the mediator, which by covenant he alone can do the work. There can be no substitute. This is why Christianity is an exclusive religion. 
it has no room for counterfeits. It has no room for alternates. It has no room for us to say, well, all the Abrahamic religions lead to the same God. They don't. If you miss Christ, you miss heaven, you miss God. You miss everything. Christianity lays before us this exclusivity. If it's not through Christ, if we're not saved by Christ, if we don't know Christ, we do not know God. Jesus is the sole mediator. No prophet can stand in his place. No angel can take his place. His uniqueness is brought out wonderfully in Revelation chapter 5. Flip over there for a moment. Revelation chapter 5. There is here a book with seven seals. And since there is a book, the longing is, what, what is contained in this book? We're not going to get into what the book signifies, but we can, we can see the exclusive exclusivity of Jesus Christ here. Revelation 5 verse 1, And I saw in the right hand of him that sat on the throne a book written within and on the backside sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the book and to loose the seals thereof? And no man in heaven nor in earth, neither under the earth, was able to open the book, neither to look thereon. And I wept much because no man was found worthy to open and to read the book, neither to look thereon. Oh, here's John. Oh, there's something contained here. There's something contained. There's something important here that God has given. God has given something, and no one's able to open it. This is man without Christ. This is the weeping that should come to everyone who who tries to get to God without Christ. There's no access. There's no entrance. There's no acceptance. There's no hope. And so the only response is weeping, real weeping. Who is going to bring us near? Who is going to reveal what we must know? Verse 5 says, One of the elders saith unto me, Weep not. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, hath prevailed to open the book and to loose the seven seals thereof. Yes, yes, there is one mediator between God and men. And he has this peculiar position, able to do what no one else is able to do. And it has purposely been set aside that way. All things are delivered to me of my Father. They're exclusive things given to me, only given to me of my Father. And so he is the one that is able. He is able to save. He is the only one able to save, but he is the one able to save. And so as you run to him, sinner, you can run to him knowing, knowing that he can save. He has been given this unique position. He's been set aside for this appointment that there are sinners in this world and they need saving. And Jesus Christ is the one able to do it. He has mastery in this area. All things have been delivered unto him of his Father. The Father has given him this responsibility, this ability, this this freedom to be the mediator, this appointment to be the mediator and to bring sinners to God. Of course, it's greatly encouraging to think as believers that all things are delivered to Christ by the Father. That He has such authority and power. 
We have one that understands what we're facing. This one to whom all things are delivered is one that He's not just God, though He is, but He is also man. So He completely understands the trials that you face and how to help you in those trials. The hymn writer said, He wants temptations new of every sort and kind that He might succor show to every tempted mind. In every point the Lamb was tried like us, and then for us He died. He's able then to succor. Having gone through it all, He knows the grace needed for it all. All things are delivered to me of my Father. So His sovereignty is expressed here in His dominion. This is an expression of dominion. He is going to underline it when He sends forth His disciples into the world to preach the gospel. All power is given unto me, both in heaven and on earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations. I have all authority. The one in whom you have union, the one that you serve, your master, your redeemer, your savior, your friend, is with you and He has all power. Go, go friends, go Christians, go into the world. All things are delivered to Christ. And since He loves you, beyond your comprehension, He will help you and uphold you. But also His sovereignty expressed in His knowledge. It is expressed in His knowledge. And no man knoweth who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. In one sense, this is a very plain statement. The Father has perfect knowledge of the Son, and the Son has perfect knowledge of the Father. Does any more need to be said? Well, it might be helpful for us to think a little more about this. To think that full knowledge of the Father resides in the Son. And full knowledge of the Son resides in the Father. For one point of application or doctrinal understanding, you have again here something that is unique, that sets aside Christ as distinct from all other beings. He is God. This God-man has a knowledge of the Father that is distinct. In addition, not only does he have this knowledge, it is helping us to understand that he only has this knowledge. No man has this knowledge of the Father except the Son. He's the only one who knows the Father. Man inherently has no meaningful knowledge of the Father or the Son at all. That's really what is being understood here and underlined. No man knoweth the Son, who the Son is but the Father, and who the Father is but the Son. No man. No one knows anything here. There's complete ignorance across the world. No one knows. No one knows the Father. No one knows the Son. But they both know one another perfectly. They spent an eternity before even the angels were made in perfect communion and fellowship. And they were entirely satisfied. Oh, the mystery of it all. They had this perfect satisfaction in their communion one with the other. The Father and the Son and the Spirit all working, all living, all existing, all sustaining in their being and in perfect satisfaction 
knowing, knowing the other perfectly. And amidst that eternal existence, there was an appointment. There was a covenant. There was the expression of God's intention in making the world and manifesting His glory and the saving of men. It's beyond comprehension, really. And so, what do you need to know about God? What do you need to know about God? Whatever you need to know, you need to go to the Son. Because He's the one who knows perfectly. No man knows the Father except the Son. You can't know. You can't know the Father. And you can't know the Son. It's frightening, you know, when you think about it. When you just step back and you, and you consider what is being said here, it is basically shutting the door to man's ability to bring himself to God, which is what it goes on then to express, and we'll get to that in just a moment. But that's, that's, the, that's the essence of it. That's what Jesus is saying. What he goes on to say in the last little clause is to underline what's already been stated. There is no knowledge. And of course, this is the thing. Christ is rejoicing in this. He is rejoicing in the fact no man knows the Father save the Son. No man knows the Son save the Father. And in that hour he rejoiced. Why would he rejoice? Why? There's something special there. There's something special. And there can be no invasion. There can be no outside force. There can be no intrusion into that knowledge, there can be no violation of what their will is, what their plan is. They don't know. Satan doesn't know. Oh, he's picked some things up along the way. He has picked some things up. But he is hidden from knowing the Father. And he is ignorant of the Son. He lives in that ignorance. Oh, how it bothers him. Yes, angels, angels, they desire to look into. There are things they don't know. They desire to look into. They watch you. They watch, they watch how, how the Lord has saved you. And they observe it. And they take it all on board. I don't know all that goes on in their minds that are far beyond mine. But, but they, they do, they, they desire to look into and they, they, they pry and they, they look and they consider and they ponder they attend the house of worship. They're here now. They're here now, beholding what's going on. Yes, yes, when, you, when we come and we... I, I always have this thought about the various things that happen in worship and what the angels might think when they see those things taking place. Like, in the middle of worshiping God and someone falls asleep. I mean, they, they have, you know, what goes, across, what goes through their minds? Like, what are you doing? You're in the presence of the living God. How could you fall asleep? Oh, how frail these creatures are. And what glorious reality that, that the Son of God saves such. And He loves them, even though they fall asleep in worship. He does. Yeah, and then they, I can see their, their, their minds boggling over this, trying to, trying to come, come to some kind of understanding. And they've watched it for millennia. 
Yeah, they, they, they don't get entrance into this either. They, 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 don't, they don't have access. Even though they are absent of sin, no man nor angel knows who the Son is but the Father. And none of them know who the Father is but the Son. There, there's a certain sense in which at least there are parts of their knowledge that is limited. They don't have this understanding that is uniquely expressed between the Father and the Son. And you know what's marvelous too is to think that the humanity of Jesus Christ can enter into this knowledge by the Spirit of God. For the Spirit also is in this knowledge, understanding this. The Spirit's not expressly mentioned here, but, but He has that full understanding as well. And part of the, the reason for his, his having that understanding is so that He can impart it to humanity. And so the humanity of Christ, filled with the Spirit of God, is able to understand who the Father is fully by the ministry of the Spirit. Ah, <laughs> the mind boggles at these things. But they are true. Finally, the sovereignty of Christ is also expressed in His revelation. In His revelation. And He to whom the Son will reveal Him. And He to whom the Son will reveal Him. In appointing the Son to be the mediator of the elect, the Father delivered to Him the names of all those chosen from before the foundation of the world. Does that bother you? bother some people. They struggle with it. The Father delivered to the Son names. Gave them to the Son. A specific number. There can be no adding to that number. There can be no taking away from that number. In the making of heaven... There's a particular number of mansions. And at the table of the marriage supper of the Lamb, there is a particular number of seats. Christ did not die for a whole slew of empty chairs in the hope that maybe they might be fulfilled at the end, or filled at, the, at some point at the end. Maybe, maybe, maybe all these seats might be filled. No, no. All these mansions, maybe, maybe there'll be occupants. I'm shedding my blood that maybe, no, 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 no. The Father, the Father, Ephesians 1, choosing in Christ before the foundation of the world a people. The sheep, I lay down my life for the sheep. These sheep that hear his voice. So he has in his hand names. And Christ is given government over everything in order to bring each one of those in to union with himself, into actual living union, so that he, they might be with him where he is according to his own prayer in John 17. So that means he governs all things. Like, 
literally everything. He governs everything. He is governing the nations. He is governing all the governments. He is governing all the lands. He is governing every aspect of those nations. He is overseeing it all. So he, he moves and, and brings things to pass and changes uh, regimes and every, he governs it all as he moves everything into place to bring each, each of those for whom he shed his blood to himself. That's what's happening in the world, you know. The Lord's not watching on, kind of moving in conjunction with all these things that are going on. He's not reacting to things that he might shuffle things around to, to get these souls to himself. He's governing it all. All things are delivered to me of my Father. I am governing everything. Read it. Read the epistles. Read what he says about himself. All power is given to him. He's governing every aspect. He raises up one, he sets down another. Why? Why? Because in, in orchestrating all these details, he gathers. He gathers in his people to himself. And when the final one is washed in the Redeemer's blood, it's up, it's over. This epoch comes to an end. Because that's what it's all pointing to. That's, all, that's what it's all leading to. It's not aimless. It's not like the Lord is, is looking and thinking to himself, well, maybe today is the day I should wind this all up. You know? No. He's not like some of you when you're thinking about retirement, you know, wondering, should I retire this year or next year? You know? When should I pull Social Security? You know, he's, no, no. There's one goal. Get them all in. Mine, my people, my people that the Father gave to me. Those, once they are all in, it's over. And so he controls everything. He governs when they are born, where they are born, who will bring them the gospel, when that will happen, how that occurs. All of it. All of it. Now you're here tonight, not saved. He has governed your affairs. Why would you be here? Why? Ah, he has governed your life. He has led you right here. He has led you right here to hear about Jesus Christ. The only Redeemer of God's elect. Is that not an extension of mercy? Oh, is he not indicating something? I trust that you can pick up on it. Yeah, he is sovereignly, sovereignly working. And so... Who are those that end up saved? Who are those that end up knowing the Father? Who knows God? He to whom the Son will reveal Him. Can't save yourself. You know, I could, some men are very skilled at getting you to walk an aisle. Altar call, I can persuade you to walk an aisle, but... but but you might not have Jesus reveal the Father to you. So I have known people that have walked, they have walked the aisle a dozen times and never been saved on any of those occasions. On any of them. And the only way they know it is when finally, finally, the Son actually reveals himself and the Father to them. And then they realize, 
this is so different. This is so different. I, I was coming and I was trying, but, but here, no, now I see. It's not me, it's him. I don't save myself, he saves. It's not my response or call to him, it's his call to me. And I've heard that blessed call. He is calling me to him. And he has shown me the glories of his person and work. So there you are. The question is, is he revealing himself to you? Is he? Is he revealing the living God to you? Man hates these texts. Man hates them. Doesn't want anything to do with it. But here's the point. In that hour, Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Because his work is not haphazard. He's in control. He's governing everything. Ah, even, even the trials of his people when they're faced with great difficulty and they're wondering why and Jesus is there governing it all and saying, <laughs> I'm in control here. And the Philippians are looking at the great apostle Paul imprisoned and, and they're thinking, this is such a tragedy. It's such a tragedy. Paul's imprisoned. And Paul sees the divine perspective. He sees, no, no, Jesus is governing He's governing. And this has fallen out rather to the furtherance of the gospel. Yes, those of Caesar's household bid you greetings. They do. And how do they know? Because I am here. And they're chained to me for about six hours at a time. And they see me pray and they hear me preach. And God is saving some of them. And they greet you. No, He is governing all things. So he governs America. He governs, governs every state and all circumstances, and he's in control. So again, again, <laughs> reminding you, when you turn on the TV and it's getting you down, what's it telling you? It's trying to portray some sense of either things, things are chaotic or there's some man to trust in because he's in control, both of which are lies. They're lies. Christ is... Governing, so you get your news every morning when you pick up this and you read something like this. All things are delivered to me of my Father. There's all the news I need. <laughs> There's all the news I need. The Father's given it to the Son. Amen. I live to His glory. This is it, beloved. This is it. Oh, may the Lord help us. Let's bow together in prayer. Some of you here tonight may not be saved. And you're lacking assurance at the very least. If you were to die tonight, you would be lost. You've never repented of your sins. You've never turned away from a life of unbelief. You want to hold on to the reins, and so you won't become a babe. And babes... It's only babes that are saved. It's only those who cast aside their control of their lives 
God reveals Himself to those who need His help in full, entirely. They want salvation on God's terms. But maybe you've been brought to that point. You're there tonight. You want salvation. You're happy to have it on God's terms. You just need your sins forgiven. You can have it. You can have it. Maybe the Lord is dealing with your heart. Christ is revealing truth to you in a way that is very distinct from what you've known in the past. You can be saved where you are tonight. Cry out to Him. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Beg His mercy. It comes to the cry of the broken in spirit. If you need any particular help for me to walk through the Scriptures with you, you can indicate that to me. I'd be happy to talk with you. Lord, we pray, bless Thy Word. Give to each one of us a daily understanding of the absolute control of Jesus Christ. We're so thankful that these matters are not haphazard, that we can rest in the sealed certainty of how Thee, our God, how Thou art working all things out and gathering in all Thy people. We pray that Thou wilt be pleased to come by here and sovereignly reveal Thyself to sinners. O gracious God, we beg Thee, reveal Thyself to sinners. Help them to see. O God, take away the blindness and save them. Save them, we pray. Bless Thy people. Go with them as they return to their homes. Grant the privilege of Thy presence downstairs at the fellowship time. Bless the food provided. And cause Thy church this week to live in the triumph of a crucified and risen Redeemer who is now, even now, at Thy right hand, praying for Thy church. So hear us then, and may the grace of our Lord Jesus, the love of God our Father, and the fellowship of the Spirit, be with all Thy people now and ever.